Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now. Uh, we've signed a climate convention. We've asked others to join us. Most of the observed increase in temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic GHG concentrations. Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. And if we act now, and we act together, we can protect our precious planet. Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania and recording from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the two weeks of COP, I'll be holding short conversations with experts from the University of Pennsylvania on a number of priority issues that are being discussed at this year's Global Climate Change Conference. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Stacy Ann Robinson, a visiting scholar with Penn's Perry World House, whose research focuses on climate change adaptation in small island developing states. We'll be talking about loss and damage finance, which is an important issue for these states and a major issue being negotiated here at COP. Stacey Ann, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk a bit more about this topic. How's your week been here in, in COP? Uh, it's really been hectic. Um, lots of folks here uh, advocating for their rights. Uh, we're here as Penn, as observers, uh, observing the negotiations and also participating in many uh, side events. So that has really been exciting. And of course, the big ticket item for small island developing states is getting loss and damage finance on the agenda for the first time. So lots of exciting things. Expectations are high and I'm here to make my contribution as well. You know, I wonder if you could just start us out by providing a brief introduction to the concept of loss and damage. Well, one of the things that I'll say is that in the context of the UNFCCC, there's definitely some disagreement or there isn't, you know, consensus on the history of loss and damage in the UNFCCC. Uh, in my work, when I focus on small island developing states, one of the things that I will go back to is the 1991 proposal that was submitted by Vanuatu on behalf of the Alliance of Small Island uh, States, which is the main negotiating block for SIDS uh, in the UN, and, and there are others, of course. And that proposal really drew attention to the threat of global warming and sea level rise, and it actually called for an insurance pool uh, to help countries that would have been faced um, with the impacts of, of, of this slow onset event. Uh, so for me, it goes back to 1991, and as you know, that would predate the UNFCCC, uh, which was agreed in 1992. So I would argue that there is a history of this issue even before the agreement of the UNFCCC in 1992. But if we're looking specifically at the um, length of the negotiations, you know, starting in, in 1992, some folks will say, you know, the first time loss and damage, as in that specific terminology, appeared within the context of the UNFCCC was actually in uh, 2007 with the Bali Action Plan. Uh, but 
since then, well, there have been a number of milestones, I will say. But there is a feeling that loss and damage, and especially loss and damage finance, has been obstructed uh, in the negotiations. And that's why progress has been slow um, over the years. But, you know, since uh, 2007, the Bali Action Plan, there's been the Warsaw International Mechanism that was established in 2013. And from my perspective, the other big milestone is the Paris Agreement that was agreed in 2015. So if we're thinking about loss and damage as a concept, and some scholars will try to differentiate between loss and damage with a capital L and D and loss and damage with lowercase letters or losses and damages, um, I think there is a general understanding of what that means. But for your listeners, one of the things that I would like to point out that loss and damage, there are really two concepts in one, right? You can think of loss and you can think of damage, mm -hmm. right? And thinking of it that way, you'll realize that loss primarily refers to things that you can't regain, right? Forever gone, not coming back. But if you've experienced damages, the expectation is that you'll be able to rebuild. Whether or not you can rebuild in a good way or, or, or satisfactory way or in a resilient way is a little bit different, right? So this creates this kind of dichotomy, right? With things that you can lose and never gain back really being those intangibles. Um, what might those be? So we're thinking here, loss of life, right? You lose a life, you can't get it back. You can also think of cultural heritage, right? It might be a language. Um, you can also think of territory, in, in that sort of way. And you might be able to, you know, reclaim some land, but the, the loss has already been experienced. But the damages, and uh, one of the great examples that I always use is, you know, hurricanes uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, you might lose several houses or, you know, some kind of uh, infrastructure in that way, but you can always rebuild it. So from my perspective, and, you know, this is looking through the lens of small island developing states, the stakes are always higher um, for loss uh, than damages. But there's also a temporal element um, as well, which is something that would need to keep in mind. So if we're thinking about loss and damage finance, one of the things that I always try to point out is that, well, you know, finance tends to address the damages more readily, but not necessarily the loss. So one of my... Because those are non-economic issues. Non-economic issues, non-economic loss and damage. Exactly, Andy. So it's one of the fears I have about focusing so heavily on loss and damage finance and I would want to encourage negotiators not to lose sight of, you know, the loss, you know, those intangibles. How can we address those longer term issues and, and, and can we be uh, realistic uh, in, in determining whether finance can actually address loss or if it's more exclusively about damages? Let me ask you a little bit more about that. And just uh, to interject for a moment, you did mention that loss and damage is in the Paris Climate Agreement. So it was documented there in 2015. 
key issue this year is it actually has made it onto the agenda. Nobody was certain that that was going to be done. So I wonder if you could talk about that and also obviously why the financing issue related to loss and damage itself has been so contentious. I think you started to talk about that, but just would like to dive into that a little bit more deeply. No problem. Well, just to clarify that, you know, loss and damage has been on the agenda. I mean, being its own article in the Paris Agreement, but it's a finance issue, uh, making it onto the agenda. That's really the significance um, of the issue. And I think it's important to make that distinction or to ensure that that distinction is understood because I've seen several news stories over the past couple of days uh, sort of conflating the issue, but we just want to clarify because one of the questions that you'll always get is, you know, hasn't it been on the agenda? You know, why is it now only on the agenda? So just to clarify, but as a finance um, issue. In my research, financing has always uh, been contentious. But if we were to go back to the text of the 1992 convention, uh, one of the underlying principles is CBDR plus RC, which is common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities. That's a lot of words. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of words. So how that plays out is that the countries that are responsible for climate change also have a responsibility to finance action in those countries um, that are most impacted by climate change. So this idea of differentiation was set up very clearly in that convention. And for me, one of the best illustrations is the annexes. So those countries listed on Annex 1 are those countries that were deemed responsible. <laughs> those are the uh, developed countries, essentially. Yes, the industrialized countries on Annex 1. And those listed on Annex 2 were those countries that were identified as having this responsibility to finance uh, climate action. And those not listed on Annex 1 or the non-Annex 1 countries are those developing countries. Those are gravely impacted. And, and so we've set up this dynamic where we expect the financial flows to go from the Annex 2 countries in this case <laughs> to the non-Annex uh, uh, 1 countries. But the issue of responsibility has been very central to the debate who is responsible for climate change and who is responsible to finance, even though this dynamic was set up, well, at least in my perspective, set up very clearly in the uh, original uh, convention. So I'm saying all of that to say these issues have followed us for 30 years, right? So even in light of the Paris Agreement and, you know, there's tensions around this uh, in the scholarly community where some feel that the Paris Agreement is more bottom up, you know, common show me your NDCs, show me what you can do. And, you know, they would argue that the Kyoto Protocol was different, you know, a more top-down approach. And I, I explain it in that way because I think it's simpler to understand. Responsibility is still um, an issue. And to go back to the text of the Paris Agreement, the fact that Article 8 uh, is dedicated to loss and damage, it really highlights the importance of the issue, right? And it really sets it up alongside, you know, mitigation and adaptation as important climate actions. We need to recognize uh, loss and damage. But the interesting thing about Article 8, uh, while it says, you know, the importance of recognizing loss and damage and it clearly identifies identifies the role of the Warsaw International Mechanism, the WIM, the COP decision, what it said was that 
you know, it's, and I'm paraphrasing here, nothing in Article 8 should imply liability and compensation. So you can link responsibility with liability and compensation. Uh, so it comes back to responsibility. Not everybody sees it this way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been following these issues for a very long time and I always think about the spirit of the convention. Mm-hmm. And here we're talking about the framework convention, the 1992 convention. And those the negotiations have progressed significantly since then from my perspective it's one of those core issues responsibility uh, you know at at the heart of it so if we are going to establish for example the importance of article 8 and and maybe that's what we need to do raise the importance of this article but if there is a decision that says well we shouldn't be thinking about it in the context of liability and compensation that in and of itself is attention let me use the example of the caribbean every year we have a hurricane season what the data is showing us is that because of climate change these uh, weather events are becoming more intense, not necessarily more frequent, but more intense. So what we're starting to see are more extreme weather events in the Caribbean. In many instances, the the damages and loss are so exponential. Uh, One great example uh, is a case of Dominica. Uh, And and even, I, I would say, even Hurricane Dorian in, in 2019 in the Bahamas, where that was just the strongest hurricane that had ever made landfall in the Bahamas. And the impact on the GDP was so significant, right? So we are seeing this loss. We're seeing this damage. My next question is, who is responsible? Who is responsible for this hurricane that has become so intense that has allowed a country, for example, the Bahamas, to experience loss and damage to this scale, right? There are immediate problems. There there are immediate actions that need to be taken that need money. Who should pay? So so let's take a step back here. Tell me a little bit more about the history of loss and damage. Well, just to say that for me, I always go back to the 1991 um, AOSIS proposal. And for me, that was important because it signaled the importance of insurance. Um, I think the intention at the time was for it to be reflected in the text of the 1992 convention, but it was not in the way that AOSIS had envisioned at the time. And what we ended up uh, with in the convention was pretty much insurance being named as one of many options for dealing with these climatic changes, which was not, you know, what AOSIS wanted. That was not what they thought would have been important at the time. So we have the AOSIS being the Alliance of Small Island States. (laughs) So, so what we're left with in 1992 was text that say, you know, we need to look at, you know, several options, but Really, um, it wasn't until 2007 that this term, loss and damage, came up. And that was in the Bali Action Plan. And since then, from my perspective, um, the key moments in time have been the establishment of the WIM, which is a Warsaw International Mechanism. And one colleague, you know, just so smartly said that it, you know, it was sort of like a study group, <laughs> a study group. And I thought, you know, that was... And a, criticized it, for not getting much done. 
I, you know, it's an interesting way, you know, to, to angle it, but, you know, since then, you know, the whim has done a, a little bit more um, than probably persons will give it credit for. But then, you know, after the whim for me, the big issue was Paris and the dedication of an entire article to, to loss and damage. So that is my Cliff Notes version of the history um, of loss and damage. Of course, they're, they're, they're incremental um wins every year i would say you know the multilateral process is slow but you know it works even though it does take some time so there was progress on loss and damage in glasgow last year and definitely we can see progress now um, with inclusion of uh, financing uh, on the agenda here in egypt the footnotes are also important um, with the inclusion on the agenda. So while, you know, compensation is up for discussion, you know, there wasn't enthusiasm about liability <laughs> um, being included in the in the discussions. And it makes me wonder about the pathways to climate justice, especially for small island developing states. You know, will they get justice from finance being included on the agenda? Uh, will they get justice from the establishment of a financial mechanism? Or, and this is something that I've personally promoted, that we need different pathways to justice. So what we're here negotiating in Egypt these two weeks should be seen as just one of several pathways that we need. Let me ask you a final question here. What, in your view, may be a workable solution on L&D finance? Let me say that this is a contentious issue, as mm -hmm, you've pointed mm -hmm. to. And I just asked a really big question. Yeah, a, a really big uh, question. And some of the things that negotia negotiators are grappling with include whether or not it should be a new facility or whether it should be subsumed under an existing uh, mechanism. For example, the Green Climate Fund. Um if it is subsumed, say, for example, if it is, you know, a new track in terms of GCF, Green Climate Fund financing, there are real concerns about governance um, of the mechanism, whether the most vulnerable countries will be served first. And this is what, well, in part has led to the Alliance of Small Island States promoting this um, multidimensional vulnerability index where they're saying, you know, vulnerability um, in its very quantitative form uh, should be factored into financing decisions. So there are many issues to be sorted out, but just want to point out to your listeners that the fact that it's on the agenda, finance is a, is a big win, you know, but might be in a small way if you think about the magnitude of the problem and what needs to be achieved. From my own research, um, I have really looked at some of the uh, sources of financing that scholars have said, you know, the WIM, the Warsaw International Mechanism should urgently consider. And mostly, you know, there are levies or taxes on um bunker fuels, for example, or international airline travel. And, you know, I think we looked at five of them. And, and from that, what, you know, my co-authors and I were trying to identify is of these five, which would deliver the most optimal 
forms of justice for small island developing states because in my work, I see them as being among the most vulnerable countries in the world. So if we consider, for example, the sustainability um, of the flows, um, the fairness, dependability, and some other factors, what we've argued is that uh, international airline travel and fossil fuel extraction levies might be viable considering the circumstances um, of small island developing states. So this fits in to my overall narrative, which there isn't one pathway to justice and financing shouldn't be thought of in this singular way, right? So I would recommend <laughs> um, looking at all possible sources, right? All possible mechanisms, all possible institutional arrangements, and don't discount the possibility of placing a tax on international airline travel or fossil fuel extraction as potential sources um, that could lead to the operationalization of this financing mechanism. Mm -hmm. Stacey Ann, thank you very much for talking. You're welcome, Andy. <laughs> My guest has been Stacy Ann Robinson, a visiting scholar with Penn's Perry Worldhouse. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast, recorded at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Check out Energy Policy Now on the Kleinman Center website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up with research and events from the Kleinman Center, visit our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.